Uh, the books of Kings are about when things go wrong for the people of God and about learning lessons so that the future is better than the past. Uh, the first readers of these books are prisoners of war, living in a foreign land. Uh, they've seen their homeland and their religion pummeled and destroyed by foreign invaders. And to make matters worse, God has told them very plainly that all of this destruction ultimately is his doing. The Lord is punishing his own people for their disobedience and their idolatry. See, the book of Kings, all about when it goes wrong for the people of God as they disobey God and ignore God's word. In fact, as we'll see, uh, this, this book is a template of how it always goes wrong for the people of God, whether those people lived two and a half thousand years ago or whether we live in the 21st century. If we ignore God's word, trouble will come. Now, in the story uh, so far, we've passed through the high point uh, with Solomon building the temple and dedicating that temple. 1 Kings 8 is a kind of pinnacle moment in the Old Testament story. But even getting up to that, we've seen some cracks in the foundations, some questionable decisions have been made, some disobedience displayed, certainly in Solomon's life. And chapter 11 is like the roller coaster, slowly clicking up, click click, getting higher and higher, and everyone knows that just over the edge is this massive gut-busting drop. Click, 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 and over we go, screaming all the way, but uh, chapter 12 is no fun ride. Uh, This is the nation of Israel imploding, uh, never to be put back again, uh, put back together again. And what we have in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 are people who should know better. The word of God is there for them, but they will not listen and they will not learn. And so what I wanted to do this morning is just look at uh, five attitudes displayed through four people. Uh, First up, chapter 12, Rehoboam. Uh, He is the man who repeatedly says, I know best. Uh, You'd like to think that being the son of the wisest man in the world would have given Rehoboam some advantages in the common sense department, uh, but apparently not. Uh, Rehoboam quickly shows himself to be the kind of fool that his dad so often wrote about in Proverbs. And ultimately, his stubbornness splits the kingdom. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Now, already something's not quite right. Uh, Rehoboam is Solomon's heir, the temple of God, uh, the palace of the king, the royal court, the administration, it's all in Jerusalem. But the coronation is taking place in Shechem, in the north. Uh, Why Shechem? Because it seems Rehoboam already knows he's behind in the polls. He's already losing popularity in the north, so he gives into public opinion, and that That doubt about his popularity and his authority, that makes him vulnerable. Verse 2, when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. Egypt. Uh, Jeroboam sees an opportunity and he takes it. Verse 3, so they sent for Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel 
went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Now it's common political sense when starting out. We're going to hear it later on in the year, come October time. Let's be nice to everyone, says the politicians. Ease up on all the taxes, dial down the restrictions. If you want to enter into power, start talking like that. Make those offers and everyone will love you, at least in the beginning, while the new administration gets established. So will Rehoboam do the wise thing? Will will he follow the pattern of others? No chance, because he was a fool, because he thought that he and his friends knew best. Uh, When Rehoboam asked the the old hands in the civil service what to do, they gave him good advice. Uh, Picking up on Moses' words in Deuteronomy 17 about how kings should act, they gave Rehoboam a double encouragement to serve the people so that then they would serve him. Uh, Clearly, Rehoboam doesn't like that answer, and so he goes to his friends to get an answer that he'd like. Uh, Remember that Rehoboam and his friends, uh, they've only known the good times. Uh, He's only lived in the palace, drinking out of a gold sippy cup, uh, playing in a gold playpen riding around on a golden bicycle because everything in Solomon's palace was made of gold. And presumably his friends are equally privileged and obnoxious. No talk of serving anyone here. Verse 10, the young men who've grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. Uh, It's likely that these young blokes are being pretty coarse at the end of verse 10, along the lines of my manhood is bigger than my father's manhood. But more importantly, these guys have taken no notice of Solomon's repeated words and proverbs. Listen, my son, to wisdom. Learn. No, they're convinced that they know best. In some ways, it's a picture of the failure of Solomon's wisdom project. His own son, the one repeatedly addressed in Proverbs, my son, listen to my words. Here is his son. He shows no fear of the Lord. He thinks he knows best. Now, we don't have to guess at how to apply this passage. It's it's not a morality tale about listening to your elders. It's, it's not a warning about the arrogance of youth. We are told plainly what we should understand from this passage in verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for the, this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. Uh, this story is about divine sovereignty Uh, not about human foolishness. God is in control. Things are working out according to his plans. How are those plans fulfilled? Through the foolish choices of Rehoboam. He does exactly what he wants to do, and it all fits into God's plans and purposes. Uh, Human arrogance never catches God by surprise. He uses it 
Contrary to our fears that human foolishness is running loose, no, God's sovereignty has it on a leash. Well, even the divine verdict, when it's announced, Rehoboam still continues down his foolish path. Verses 16 to 20, when, when all Israel rejects David and his line, Rehoboam himself is rejected. He, he sends along one of his enforcers, verse 18, Adoniram. He's the one who's been in charge of all the forced labor, bit of a hard man. All Israel stoned him to death. And not surprisingly, Rehoboam hightails it out there on his chariot back to Jerusalem. This is how the rebellion started. This is how the nation was divided. Ten tribes in the north, who confusingly for us, are called Israel, even though the whole nation is Israel, the ten tribes are called Israel, and two tribes in the south who are called Judah. Uh, Rehoboam has blown up his father's kingdom on his first day on the job. Uh, He's made such a hash of it that it takes a direct word from God, verse 24, to stop Rehoboam launching a civil war. And interesting, in verse 24, everyone else listens and obeys the word of God. But there's no mention of the king listening to God in this chapter. Here's a not very subtle warning for us. Do not be foolish. Don't assume that we know best. We don't. I don't. You don't. But God does. Second character, Jeroboam. We come to him uh, just as God promised through his prophet, chapter 11, Jeroboam is now king over 10 out of 12 tribes. But Jeroboam is not happy to trust God's promises. He's worried. He takes matters into his own hands. And that's the problem. He takes matters into his own hands. If Rehoboam was an arrogant fool driven by pride, well, Jeroboam is his evil twin, separated at birth, who's driven by insecurity. When he feels threatened, he instinctively tries to sort it out himself. He acts as if it's all down to him. He forgets and ignores God's promise to him that we heard in chapter 11, being reminded of in verse 15. So when we come to him in verse 25, then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, I'm about to lose the kingdom if they all go down to Jerusalem. It'll all be over. So, verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. It seems that that Jeroboam lived by his emotions, his insecurities. He was scared about losing everything. So, as you do in that situation, you start a new religion. Uh, The problem was that this religion is completely made up. Jeroboam says... I'll believe exactly what I want to believe. Verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, it it doesn't make uh, for good English, but the same verb is used eight times in verses 31, 32, and 33. Jeroboam made shrines, and he made high priests. He made a festival and sacrificed on the altar he made at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he made at the high places he made. 
During the month of his own choosing, he sacrificed at the altar he made and at the festival he made. See, our author's letting us know that, that Jeroboam made up his own religion. Now, how could anyone buy into made-up religion? Well, it's a question of how it's pitched, how it's framed. Uh, verse 28, he, he sets before the people these two golden calves and declares, Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's a quote from Exodus 32. When Aaron makes a golden calf, Jeroboam literally doubles down. He makes two of them. And he doesn't hide that connection with Aaron. He celebrates it. Jeroboam seems to be suggesting that this sort of bull-assisted worship is not so wild, not so off the wall as Israel might think. He's just picking up a different tradition, which, which was embraced in the past, but it's been repressed and hidden recently. Uh, Jeremiah isn't a radical innovator. Rather, he's going back to the riches of Israel's heritage. Oh, it used to be the case that Israelite religion was broader and more inclusive before the conservatives made it narrow and closed. Come celebrate a revival of the ancient days. And how much more convenient this will be. No one needs to go to Jerusalem and the temple down there. We'll have an altar up north in Bethel and we'll have one down south in Dan. So much easier. It's not hard to make it sound plausible. But made-up religion is a dead end. It doesn't matter if it's Jeroboam 3,000 years ago or Joseph Smith launching the Mormon religion in 1830 or Charles Russell starting the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1872 or people naming their religion in the census on Tuesday as Jedi. Uh, Real religion, biblical religion, biblical Christianity is revealed. It's not made up. Faithfulness is much more important than creativity when it comes to working out what to believe. Uh, Jeroboam was was no doubt very pleased with himself and his new religion. But as uh, Jeroboam stood by his new altar, assisted by his new priests on the day of his new festival, a man moves to the front of the crowd, chapter 13. Uh, This man has come from Judah in the south up to the northern tribes and he tells the altar its days are numbered. Uh, Jeroboam tries to get hold of him, verse 4, but Jeroboam's arm withers. The man prays for the king. He's healed. When the king invites them, this man to his palace, it's a hard no from the prophet, and then he leaves. Uh, listen to the passage and see if you can hear the repeated refrain. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places. You make offerings here, you make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign. The Lord has declared the altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes 
poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. And when the prophet refuses to eat with the king, it's because, verse 9, for I was commanded by the word of the Lord. Do you think the author of Kings wants to emphasize, listen to the word of the Lord? Now, we'll come back to the strange southern prophet in a moment, but but for for now, let's just stick with Jeroboam. Uh, He gets a message from God. He gets a sign from God. He gets a miraculous healing from God. Well, what impact do you think this has on him? What's what's the net result of all of this? Uh, Chapter 13, verse 33. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. Uh, The Lord goes to great lengths to bring Jeroboam's theology and practice back into line and he won't have it. He refuses to listen. He refuses to accept correction. He refuses to repent. He insists on believing exactly what he wants to believe. Now, we're all capable of drifting off to things that seem attractive or compelling, doing things that that seem to work, which is why we all have to keep coming back again and again to the Bible to make sure that what we believe and what we are doing aligns with the scriptures. Well, let's go back to the the prophet from Judah who confronts Jeroboam. I mean, it's no small thing to travel from the south into the hostile territory of the north to, to waltz into Jeroboam's new religion and point out that the problem is the bull altar. That's what exactly what he did. This unnamed prophet speaks truth to power with absolute boldness and bravery, in the context in which he stands there alone. Uh, The pressure is on, and this man, he does the business. And then he blows it. Uh, What happens next is a powerful warning about relaxing after the dangers of the battle have passed. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 11. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he'd said to the king. Their father asked him which way did he go and his sons showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me and when they'd saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home and eat, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who'd come from Judah, this is what the Lord says, 
you've defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. Uh, Here is a cryptic and confusing passage. Very fast. Lion, donkey, why are they standing there? Know nothing about them. Uh, All sorts of questions are provoked by this passage, but the writer, the author, doesn't seem the least bit interested in answering any of our questions. Uh, He's just zeroing in on one main point. And what is the main point? Well, for the man of God from Judah, even though he spoke the word of the Lord, he forgot to keep listening. He relaxed. Uh, The lying prophet sucked him in. All because he relaxed. Because the hard, he thought the hard work was done. See, I wonder sometimes if it would be easier to be in one of those countries where Christians are overtly persecuted, where believers are directly confronted for being a Christian. It's kind of black and white. You've prepared for that moment, rehearsed what you would say. Bravely you decide to accept your fate for following Jesus. I wonder if it's harder to do something mundane and ordinary. Like go home when I'm tired or hungry or when I think I deserve a rest and kind of sort of blindly think, I don't have to be godly or obedient. I can take the night off from Jesus. Uh, This prophet shows that upping our game when we need to isn't actually enough. We need to be consistent. We need to listen to God in the boring moments of life. Because it's so often in the boring, innocuous moments when you're dealing with an old guy who's offering you a meal. That's when the game is won or lost. Well, what about this lying prophet? Again, it's, it's so cryptic, it's so confusing. We don't have a lot of details. But what we can say is that he feels comfortable to obey God when he feels like it. He knows what obedience looks like. He knows the difference between lying and speaking the truth of the Lord. And he seems to be happy to do either. I see verse 26. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, It's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. And then he takes him and then he laid... Uh, the body in his own tomb, verse 30, and they mourned over him and said, Alas, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones, for the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. We don't know whether this man... His lie is a kind of one-off or we don't kind of what motivated him to do this. But we see him playing a very dangerous game. He knows the word of the Lord. 
And he knows the consequences for disobedience. Are we that different from this man? Uh, We know the word of the Lord. And we know the consequences of disobedience. The warning is, occasional obedience isn't an option. It's not good enough. Well, we come to uh, chapter 14, and it's uh, Jeroboam part 2. Jeroboam brazenly and surprisingly tries to call on the Lord when he really needs him. Uh, Jeroboam's son is uh, deeply unwell, which means that Jeroboam's dynasty is uh, being threatened. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Chapter 14, at that time, Abijah, so his son's name, Abijah with a B. We're going to get the prophet with an H, Ahijah, but you can see the difference between the two. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, go disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet, is there, the one who told me I would be king over his people, over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said, and he went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he's ill, and you're to give her such and such an answer. But when she arrives, she'll pretend to be somebody else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I've been sent to you with bad news. Uh, God does have a a habit of uh, turning the tables on people who are just trying to use him. Verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. You've not been like my servant David. Verse 9, you've done more evil than all who lived before you. You've made for yourselves other gods, idols made of metal. You've aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Verse 15, and the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water, verse 16, and he'll give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. And verse 16 is like a theme tune that runs through the rest of Kings. 16 times or more we get this phrase, because of the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the man who who only called on God when he absolutely desperate He becomes a byword for rebellion. His son dies, his dynasty ends, his people are exiled, and all of that uh, will unfold through the rest of the book. But it starts at the very next verse, verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to uh, Terza. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his prophet Ahijah. Uh, five attitudes, four people. Rehoboam knows best. Jeroboam will believe what he wants and he'll, he'll call on God when he feels like it. Uh, one prophet who's great in a crisis and hopeless in the ordinary details of life. Another one is great when he feels like obeying and he's awful when he doesn't. At one level, these, these three chapters are kind of a, a vivid picture of bad behavior. 
If you want to see foolishness and arrogance and inconsistency and selfishness, they're all here. But more than that, these chapters talk to us about the need for the people of God to respond to the word of God. Now, as New Testament believers, we're in a different place than Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We are not ancient kings or court prophets. No, no, it's much, much worse for us. See, our privileges are much greater. We have the spirit of prophecy living in us. We've been adopted into God's royal family as brothers and sisters of the King of Kings. We know we've already been forgiven. We know we're being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get much better than that. So shouldn't we listen to the Lord when he speaks? Shouldn't we admit that he knows best? Shouldn't we be quick to run to him for security? Shouldn't we run back to him with tears when we rebel? And listen to his voice every time and, and call on him when we need him, which is all the time. We should, because we have so much more mercy experienced and seen. And yet we don't. But the incredible thing is, in the same way God was incredibly merciful and patient with Jeroboam, so God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. No, instead he trains and disciples and changes us. Because that's what the word of God does for us. See, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, including these chapters in 1 Kings, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can you hear the Lord speaking through this section of 1 Kings to teach you to rebuke you, to correct you, to train you. It's not just a learning exercise. When was the last time you got told off by the word of God? Or taught? Or corrected? Are we listening? Will we obey? We've got the bad examples. Can we learn from them? Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise. In your great wisdom, you've put your word into our hand. Forgive us for when we do not listen. Teach us, train us, lead us to be those who are quick to embrace and obey and follow your word. For Jesus' sake, amen.